0: All right, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. If you are using the uh, Red Pew Bible, it's page 811. And we're also going to be making reference to a passage in the Old Testament that you see on the screen behind me, but uh, it's First Chronicles 29, 11 through 13. If you're using the Red Pew Bible, that's on page 357. We are, uh, we're finishing up this look at, uh, at the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus tells us to pray like this. And we've been doing that this summer, and, uh, and this is the last part. And if you've been with us through most of the series, um, but maybe more specifically, if you, if you memorized this prayer as a child, which many of you probably did, if you grew up in the church, uh, then you'll notice, you'll notice as we've read this prayer from verses 9 to 13 every week, that, uh, that something is missing from what you memorized and what we read. Uh, and so I'm going to read, starting in verse 9 through 13, uh, and then we'll see if you can catch uh, maybe something familiar that's familiar to your mind but uh, isn't in Matthew 6. Jesus says, actually, let me pray first, and then we'll read. Let's pray. Rock of Ages, when we run to you, naked, we come to thee for dress, helpless look to you for grace. We are foul, and so we fly to the fountain we to the fountain fly and we cry out, Wash me, Savior, or I die. Lord, as we we look at Your Word, and as You teach us how to pray, would You bless the reading of Your Word? Would You bless this sermon? uh, That it would be a means of grace to all who hear it. That we would believe on You, that we would be saved, and that we would be strengthened. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What's missing? For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. In fact, now if you're reading in the in the King James Bible, it's not missing; it's there. Okay, um, but if you're reading in the ESV Bible, which is what I have or what's in the pew, uh, you'll see that it's left in the margin. Okay. Um, now the long explanation was given in Sunday school, so you can come to Sunday school. Um, the short answer is this, all right, why, why is that, why is that in the prayer I memorized as a, as a child, but not in what I'm reading in Matthew chapter six. And the reason that we think probably is that that line for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever wasn't actually part of what Jesus said in Matthew six that our oldest manuscripts of Matthew 6 don't have it in there, right? And a lot of early writers don't even, don't even give a reference to it, right? So at some point, probably what happened is, right, that as the church used Matthew 6 for worship. And so um, the early church and lots of churches since then are very responsive in their worship style, okay? And so what would happen is the the leader or the pastor would read something or say something and then the congregation would respond. That's how the Bible has been used in worship for centuries, right? And so at some point as they were using the Lord's Prayer in a worship service, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory was tagged on there as part of the worship prayer. Okay? And it got written in in somebody's copy of Matthew 6, and then it got passed along, which is how it ended up um, becoming part of so many Bible translations. Um, now, here's the thing. Just because it's not in there doesn't mean it's not good. All right? And here's what we, here's what we think, and this is why I gave reference to 1 Chronicles twenty nine eleven through 13. Uh, if you can, I want you to turn there. Again, in the Pew Bible, it's page 357. 1st Chronicles 29 This is David praying at the end of his life before he hands the kingdom over to his son Solomon. And actually I'll start in verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the congregation and David said, "Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth, heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O oh Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great. To give strength to all, and now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Did you hear how much that sounds like the uh, the doxology ended, uh, that ends the Lord's Prayer as far as we've memorized it? Um, and I just used that word doxology. Now, didn't we just sing the doxology, all right? Well, yeah, we call that the doxology, and that's again handed down to us through the centuries. But that word, doxology, is actually a really common one, right? That word doxology means, right, literally it's glory saying. Doxa, glory, logia, saying. Glory saying, right? And that's really just a short hymn or a few verses that give glory to God. That's what doxology means, a short phrase that gives glory to God. And we find those all over the Bible, right you'll find paul he's writing on something and he just gets so excited that he stops and writes a doxology right that's what david's doing here he's so overwhelmed by what god has done that he gives praise to god right that he gives a doxology and so what we're looking at at the end of the lord's prayer is a doxology and it's a perfect way to end prayer because it just brings us full circle Right, if you remember, at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, we're talking about and we're praying about God's glory and God's name and God's kingdom, right? and then we go to what our needs are and we pray through those. And then the reason the doxology is a, such a fitting end to the prayer is that it brings us back and reminds us of who we're praying to, right? that we are brought back and we give praise to God. And so this doxology forms a fitting end to prayer, which is why I felt it good to preach on it. Um, so here's what we're going to see, right? That all our confidence in praying, the reason we can even come before God and even ask these things of him, the reason the, the confidence in all our praying is the power and majesty and goodness of God himself, right? When you pray, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You are reminding yourself that, the God, that, that you are talking to God, and that the reason your prayers can even be answered, the confidence you have in talking to God is not in you, and it's not in your requests, but it's in God Himself. It's in the power and majesty and goodness of God Himself. So let's look at each part of this. Right, Confidence in the King of the Kingdom. You know, when we uh, when we started looking at renovating this sanctuary so that we could fit more seats in here, uh, we, we started talking about, okay, how do we do this? How do we renovate this sanctuary without bringing down the sidewalls? How do we give ourselves more room without just basically tearing the whole building down? And what we realized as we talked with architects, et cetera, is that that wall can come out and that we want to push this wall back. And that if you go and look at our capital campaign billboard back there, you'll see. That's what the plan is to push this wall back. Here's the thing. For every one of those roof trusses, so where you see this piece of wood, right, there's a truss above it, and every one of those trusses is resting on on the side wall. That's what supports the roof until you get to this wall. What supports this truss is this wall. That's what we call a load-bearing wall. Right? And if you, rem- and, and the reason you call it that, right? If you remove the bearing, down comes the load, right? So if you're going to push this wall back, what will happen to the roof truss and the rest of the building, right? It's probably going to come down, right? So if you take away the wall without putting in supports, right? If you do that, any load bearing wall, anywhere, right? If you remove a load bearing wall without putting any extra support in, um, you bring down the load. I want you to think about this every time you pray right what you're asking for is impossible right humanly speaking what you are praying for is impossible that's why you pray That's the nature of prayer right Christian prayer is not you know transcendental meditation that seeks to clear the mind that's not what Christian prayer is for that may be prayer in other religions but not in Christianity uh, We don't pray Christian prayer is not, for health benefits, though I'm sure there is some health benefit to actually sitting down and being quiet, right, especially in our fast-paced culture, but that's not what Christian prayer is for. Christian prayer is asking God to do what you cannot do. In other words, it's asking God to bear the load. Christian prayer is going to the load-bearer and asking him to bear the load you cannot bear. Just look, at the, uh, just look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, some of the things that we've been taught to pray right God says or Jesus says right hallowed be your name may your name be glorified and what we saw when we looked at that part of the prayer is that we don't do that we hallow our own names we want to make our own names great we don't have a tendency to proclaim God's name right we we want to play for our own name and so we have to have God's help that's a spiritual work in us that enables us to make God's name great, to glorify God's name. But even look at that, that first petition that we pray, right? Uh, give us this day our daily bread, food. Did you ever think about the fact that even in praying that God would give you food, that you're asking for something impossible? Can any of you make bread? It's kind of a trick question. Some of you do make bread, and it tastes very yummy, right? But maybe the better question would be, can you create bread? And the answer is no, you cannot, right? What you can do is take all of these different ingredients and put them together to make bread, right? But in order for those to get to you, there's a whole lot of process that goes in, right? For beginners, you have to have sunlight, and it has to travel a pretty certain distance in order to provide the light necessary to grow wheat and and not fry you. Right, and so too much sunshine, and we're toast. Too little sunshine, and we're popsicles. Right, and so the sun set at an exact distance, providing an exact amount of light to this ball of rock we call Earth that's spinning through the universe. Okay, um, you have to have water. Right now, you and I, we know how to how to irrigate. We can bring water from one place to another. But we can't snap our fingers and make water appear, right? Our farmers in California are figuring this out, that uh, water is our most precious resource and because we can't create it. We can't make it happen. But God can. And then, of course, there comes the seed and the dirt and the growing and all of those things. So when you pray, Lord, give me what I need to survive, what you are recognizing, what you're realizing is I cannot provide for myself. I can work hard. I can earn money so that I can go buy food. But that's just one small part of the equation. So I can be responsible to do my part, but God must be responsible to do all the rest. And so I'm asking him to bear the load that enables me to provide food, to put food on my table. All right? So in prayer, we're asking for God to do the impossible. We're asking for God to do the load-bearing. And when we get to this first thing, right, that we have confidence in the king, what this says is that Christian prayer is not just a shot into the dark, right? We don't cross our fingers and close our eyes and pray hoping that somebody up there is going to hear it and be nice. That's not Christian prayer. Christian prayer knows who it's directed to. It's directed to the king of the kingdom. It's aimed at the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills or as David says here in his prayer in 1st Chronicles, right? All that is in the heavens and earth is yours, yours is the kingdom, you are exalted as head over all, riches and honor come from you. So our confidence in being heard is not based on ourselves. It's not God, you need to hear me. I'm important. I deserve your ear. No, that's not what our confidence is based on. Our confidence is not based on the weightiness of our requests. As grave and as heavy as they may be, our prayers are not heard because they are serious. Our prayers are heard because they come before the King. They come before the one who made it all with a word, the one who owns it all, and the one who sustains it all. And so what this means for your prayers is, unlike in Greek and Roman mythology, where basically basically the Greeks and the Romans worshipped a, a particular God, though there were many, right? The, the goal was, if I worship this God the right way, he'll stay off my back. That really, in, in the different mythologies, even going all the way back to the ones that, um, that predate the Old Testament, right? that are happening at the same time, in every other religion and every other man-made mythology, the problem with the gods is that they're always out to get man. They're always looking to squash. They're always, man is a nuisance to the gods. And so what man has to do is basically keep the gods happy in order to keep them off their back, right? Um, if you were a sailor living in the Greek world, you did not want to get on Poseidon's bad side. Poseidon was a god of the sea. If you got on his bad side, your ship was going to wreck and you were going to be lost forever, okay? So you, that, that, that's, how, that's how outside of the Bible religion is understood and prayer is understood. How do I keep the gods off my back? But what hope is there in that kind of prayer? That's the, that, again, that's the crossing your fingers, closing your eyes, hoping that this prayer makes Zeus happy because I don't want him to be unhappy. But here's the, here's the promise of, of the Bible, that the one you pray to, one, he's just one. There is only one God, and he controls the seas, the skies, the lightning, and everything else. And the, and the witness of the Old and the New Testament is that that one God is for his people. That he is not against. That when we pray, we are confident in the fact that the king hears... And that he's not some angry volcano waiting to pour down fire upon us for a a missed word. So we have confidence. We don't have to wonder who is listening or if anyone at all is listening. Christian prayer is not blind faith. Our confidence in prayer rests with the king. But even further, we have boldness in prayer in the power of the king, right? Power goes with the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom and the power, but there's a step further. So, I mean, no disrespect to Queen Elizabeth of Great Britain. She'll never listen to this sermon anyway, so I don't think it's going to bother her any bit. But if you didn't know, Queen Elizabeth doesn't actually rule the United Kingdom. She doesn't actually rule Great Britain, right? Queen Elizabeth is what we call a figurehead. So she is a queen, and her family is royal, right? And which means they have nice houses and lots of other people's money. So, I said I meant no disrespect. But Queen Elizabeth. But the but the people who rule Great Britain is Parliament and the Prime Minister. They have the authority over laws passed in Great Britain. The Queen is a figurehead. Brothers and sisters, God is no figurehead. He is a real king with real power. Not a real king with no power. He is a real king with real power. And he's not the king of Micronesia. Do you know where Micronesia is? Exactly. It's a small island small islands in the Pacific, okay? He is the king of the universe. And so every galaxy that spins around a burning hot sun spins at his command. And every quark that makes up every proton, that makes up every atom, exists and spins at his command. From the smallest to the greatest, the king has power. And that is who the Christian goes to for prayer Think about this. We've been looking in Sunday school. We've been studying the book of Genesis. And if you're familiar with Genesis, at the beginning, towards the beginning of the book, you have the story of Abraham and Sarah. Okay? And now, God calls Abraham out of his idolatrous religion and says, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless the world through you. And so, God's plan to save the world Rest on Abraham. Now here's the problem among many. Uh, Abraham and Sarah don't have children and can't have children. Abraham and Sarah, you can't be a great nation without offspring. And Abraham and Sarah don't have any. But what we see as, the, as Genesis goes, as God walks with Abraham and Sarah through the decades, he reveals more and more about his plan for them, how he's going to resolve their problems. And so you get to Genesis 18. God shows up and he meets with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, he says, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. Now at this point, Abraham is close to 99 years old. And Sarah is almost just as old. More than that, what the text says is that the way of women had ceased to be with her. That means that her body was no longer capable of bearing children, of conceiving and bearing children. It was impossible, physically impossible. There was no way for her to be able to do that. And so God tells Abraham, he says, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. And Sarah in the tent overhears this and she laughs. And not happy laughter, but a sarcastic, yeah, whatever kind of laughter. It's the laughter of unbelief. And God says, God looks at Abraham, He says, Why did Sarah laugh? And then He says this, Is anything too hard for God? That's His question to Sarah. Is anything too hard for God? That's the king with the power. You know what happened a year later? A 99-year-old man and a close to 99-year-old woman who could no longer have children had a baby boy. And his name was Isaac. Nothing is too hard for God. And so when we pray, we talk to the one for whom nothing is impossible. If it conforms to his goodwill, then it is possible. Our confidence in prayer rests on the power of the king. So yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power of Yours is the glory forever. Glory, that word is used throughout the Bible. We know we're supposed to give it to God. What glory means, right, in the Old Testament, it has notions of heaviness or weightiness. And so I want you to think about precious metals. Think about gold. Gold is heavy. So if you think of a golden crown, it weighs a lot more than a brass crown. I hope that's right. I'm looking for like nonsense. Yeah. Okay, thank you. You're a botanist, you? sweet. Alright. So what is glory carries weight, right? And so you think think about think about the people who are nearest to you. Whose opinion carries weight with you? If people are important, uh, typically if they have wealth or if they have influence, they are weighty people. Their word matters. Okay? So that is that is wrapped up in this idea of glory. When you get into the New Testament, it comes from a word meaning opinion, right? And so glory means to have a high opinion of. And so when we talk about glorifying God, bringing glory to God, what it means is that we want to we want to reveal all that God is worth, like throwing a spotlight on God's all of God's beauty, right? Imagine Right, when you go into a diamond store to buy a ring, they've got all the lights aimed at the correct angle so that when you hold up even the cheapest diamond, it will look great. Right? But a great diamond is, is visible to, when, when you have the right light shining through it. Right? When the light is shining on a diamond, if it's, in, if it's in a dark cave and there's no light, that diamond is not very glorious. But when the diamond is is put in in the right light, then all of its manifold glories are revealed. And what we're talking about, when we're talking about glorifying God, we're meaning we want to show how great he is. So what does it mean then that our prayer is aimed at God's glory? Turn over with me to Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. And what's going on here is God has saved the slave people of Israel. He's brought them out of Egypt. They've come to Mount Sinai. They've heard his law. And now Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and has a a meeting with God. And he's getting more of the law. He's hearing about how to worship. That's the ironic thing is that Moses is learning from God how God wants to be worshiped. But the people at the bottom of the mountain, as we learn in Exodus 32, verse 1, they don't see Moses for a while, and so they set up their own worship service with a golden calf. That does not go well. Okay? They decide that they're going to worship God. Since they haven't heard from Moses, they're just going to do it on their own and get going on the rest of the way to the promised land. So basically, I don't know what happened to Moses. Let's just make this golden calf our God. And this is what will get us into the promised land. So they've forgotten God that quickly. Here's what God says to Moses, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Just In, in the Old Testament, you don't want to be stiff-necked. That means you're a, that means you're a bad cow. Right, The stiff-necked animal is the one who's in the plow, and when you try to direct it to go a different way, it basically ignores you and keeps going the way it wants to go. That's a stiff-necked animal. You can't turn its neck. That's what God is saying about his people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that they... Excuse me. In order that I may make a great nation of you. Okay, so... God is angry, and he says, all right, forget them. I'm just going to start over with you, Moses. Notice how Moses prays, verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever." And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Did you notice what Moses based his prayer on? When Moses when Moses has to stand between God's wrath and the disobedient people, he doesn't say, Lord, you know, they're stiff-necked. They're going to do this again. You should probably forgive them, right? To err is human, so just... Have mercy, because they're pretty pitiful. He doesn't base it on them. He bases it on God. He says, Lord, why would you do this? If you do this, the Egyptians will say, you just brought us out here to kill us. Your name will not be as great if you do this. Moses asked something impossible. Of God. He says, have mercy on sinful people. And he doesn't tell him to have mercy because of the sinful people. Here's what's crazy. He says, have mercy because you're a glorious God. And that when you have mercy on your people, your name will be magnified. Your name will be glorious because you have mercy. Friend, the reason you're sitting in this room is because God didn't wipe out the 12 tribes that day. The reason you're here is because God has mercy on sinful people. And rather than denigrating and bringing shame upon His name, it actually makes His name all the more glorious. Because He is a righteous God who has mercy. And so in prayer, the glory of God is our greatest good. So... This is, this is hard to pray, especially if, if I'm facing a diagnosis of cancer. Many of you have done that, or many of you have maybe buried loved ones who faced that diagnosis. And your prayers can go several different directions when you're faced with an illness like that. But the ultimate end is God's glory. The ultimate end is, Lord, whatever may happen. May other people see you as more worthy because of what happens. Lord, may I see you as more worthy, as more worthy of praise and honor and glory, regardless of what happens. At the end of this trial, be more glorious to me. At the end of this trial, be more glorious to my parents. Be more glorious to my family. Be more glorious to my friends. That's what it means to aim prayer at the glory of the King, and all of that forever. And so we finish our prayer with the word Amen, and that word simply means true, or so be it. So, for instance, in the New Testament, when Jesus says, as he often does, truly, truly, I tell you, literally what he's saying is, amen, amen, I tell you, right? What I'm about to tell you is really true, and you should listen. Or if you and I are outside, or, gosh, in here right now, right? Man, it is warm. And if you say, amen, what, what you're saying is, I agree. So when we finish our prayers with amen, that's not just like the period that goes at the end of a prayer, what we're saying is, what I've just said is my, is my heart's desire. It's true. It's sincere. But there's more. Paul and John, writers in the New Testament, they called Jesus the Amen. And they mean this. He is true and faithful. He is rock solid. He cannot be moved. He is resolute in His love for the Father and in His love for His people. And so when we say amen at the end of our prayers, we are recognizing that Jesus is our amen. He is our final reminder that we are heard by God, not because of us, but because of Jesus. We have the Father's ear because the Son bends it for us. We have the Father's ear because the Son bends it for us. We sang, Come now, Fount of Every Blessing. And what we're saying is that in God, every blessing that we could possibly want or need is found in Him. And that fountain is opened by Jesus. Our Amen. Do you know Him? Come to Him. Trust on Him. Rest in Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise You, because Yours is the kingdom, Yours is the power, Yours is the glory forever. Lord, You do all things well, and You are good, and You are faithful. And so, when we pray, we can be confident. Lord, I pray that we would be confident in Christ. Not self-confident or confident in the prayers of our parents, but confident in the Lord Jesus who bends the Father's ear that we may be heard, that we may be rejoiced over and sung over. Thank you for teaching us how to pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.